Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Ash Egan, founder of Archetype. He is a true crypto-native investor, having led early investments in Chainalysis, Near, and Balancer. He also led Accomplices Investments in Dapper Labs, Flow, and Bison Trails, which was acquired by Coinbase. We get a clear glimpse into the shift in investing in the space, from FOMO-fueled investing during the bull market to taking the long-term view in our current bear market. We also take a deep dive into how Web3 is shaking up the music industry. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Well, welcome to the show, Ash. Thank you for having me, Zach. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I know that we got uh, introduced by a mutual friend. Um, one of the biggest honors as a, a podcast host or show host is when your guests want to introduce you to more people. So uh, I'm super excited to uh, to talk with you a little bit more about uh, everything you've done in the uh, crypto and Web3 space. Uh, I usually start these interviews off by asking your founding story. I want the audience to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, let you Let us know what makes Ash Ash. Um, this can start before Web3, uh, preferably. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me and excited for the discussion today, Zach. So, yeah, my background is grew up on the East Coast, uh, played squash growing up and sort of, you know, the, the goal as, you know, as long as I can remember as a kid was, you know, go play squash at Princeton, you know, and, and ended up, you know, was lucky enough to end up doing that. Once I rode to campus, you know, just the, being around so many intelligent people doing a variety of different things. I stumbled on startups and was really just fascinated by this concept of disrupting entire industries or creating entirely new industries as a young person and as a young company. And so just, you know, read everything I could around startups uh, through that journey, ended up discovering venture capital, really started with the book eBoys about benchmarks creation. And, you know, as I was sort of making my way through college, was thinking through, okay, you know, what industry do I want to start a company in? Um, ultimately, when I graduated, shipped up to Boston, joined a small venture firm up there called Converge. And at Converge was just really studying around, you know, what are the different industries like? You know, what are the founders like? Uh, uh, what are the inflection points? What are the metrics? And was also thinking through what is the next platform? And by platform, you know, you have these new technologies where trillions of dollars of value creation was happening, the internet, social, mobile, right? And so came across the Ethereum white paper and made a bet that, you know, I, I thought smart contracts and sort of, you know, crypto, it was called the Bitcoin ecosystem at the time, could be that next that uh that next platform and just stuck with it and that was 2015 so you know that that's sort of my my history on on and where you know i came from i mean i don't i don't know if i've ever met a person who who is i'm gonna be a squash player at princeton like what what, what was driving such like a specific sport was it a family tradition was it uh what, what was really driving that? Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it was like I grew up in a small town outside of Philadelphia, went to school. You know, it was, it was a 10, 15 minute walk from my house. On the way was a, uh, uh, 
a facility where you had squash courts. And so, you know, played tennis, played, played a bunch of sports, uh, you know, in middle school and high school, but it was really, you know, that, that was sort of a big part of my identity, uh, my arena, you know, a place where I could compete. And so from, it was really starting in uh, fourth grade where I was competitive, you know, I was like a 10 year old going around to these different tournaments around the country internationally. That's awesome. And, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that you, you learn, I think a ton of different principles and just ways to conduct business as an athlete, you know, respecting others and just a commitment to hard work and whatnot. But I, I was not exposed to, you know, a lot of the things that if you grow up in Silicon Valley or if you grow up in Boston or if you grow up in sort of like these tech hubs, you might be exposed to as, as a young person. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I credit a lot of that journey for building a firm today. Um, but, yeah, very different course than someone who was, you know, sort of uh, grew up around just, you know, the greats of, of SF and Silicon Valley. Yeah. That, that, and then just like in particular, the sport itself, is there, you kind of hinted at it, um, the lessons that you learned from playing a sport at a high level, like you were, um, was there one, what, what were some of those lessons and two, what were you, what was, what was unique to squash? as opposed to maybe some other sports that people might've grown up uh, playing your, your typical basketball, football running kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, look, sports in general are just fantastic for learning life lessons and understanding, you know, put, you have to put in the work to be competitive, but I think as it relates to, to squash, right. Just the strategy component, right. It's almost like a chess on with your legs, uh, and, and with your racket. And then also just the individual uh, component of squash where you're playing one other person, but as a team, you're competing, right? And it's in, uh, in college, it was, you know, sort of nine players in the lineup. And so, you know, you want, you were pushing for a collective outcome and result, but you also had to do, you know, your job and, and get it done. And so I think, even as I build out a firm, just thinking through that, right? Like in your own respective role, you know, you want to execute on that, but then you also want to be helping to coach the team towards that, that greater goal and sort of having that collective mind share. So uh, yeah, I, look again, I think it, it instilled a ton of fantastic lessons that I still carry to this day. Yeah. I think when you start to talk about understanding the role of the individual uh, along with the you know, role that that individual plays in furthering the collective. Um, I, I can't help but, but <laughs> a little bit of a confirmation bias, but I think about the space, right? Uh, and the empowerment of that individual, but also understanding that as a whole, uh, we now have like a level of, of ownership and autonomy in this space that has never been possible before. Um, and I think early on, the individual shined right? The individual traders, the speculators and all that. But what we're seeing as things have cooled off a little bit, um, you're starting to see an interest again. And in how do we make the collective better with the technology? I think that's spot on. You know, I think just looking at recent news and what a lot of folks got excited about with FTX and sort of SBF was there are the articulation or pursuit to build a super app, right? It's so hard to do everything extremely well. And, you know, I think obviously uh, news and all this stuff is still coming out, but, you know, he did not execute on that, right? And it's so hard for one company or one protocol to execute on everything that's happening in the industry. There's so many, there's so many different things that are happening in this ecosystem. And so, you know, I think you have to focus on what you can control. And, uh, you know, just as a, as a company, as a firm, it's so much easier to do these things as a collective versus trying to do it yourself. Um, you know, there's just too much competition nowadays to try to compete on a global scale as an individual. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. As I think about, you know, the way that a protocol runs now, like if you're running off of, uh, you know, smart contracts, like, 
you have to be very specific in what happens, right? Um, there's got to be a very clear lineage of if this, then this. I know it gets more complicated than that, but um, you almost have to focus on a niche and, and slowly build out. So it kind of lends itself to finding these certain, you know, niches within Web3, within the blockchain community, within crypto. Um, I, I guess, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, um, you were working at a venture firm. When did you first raise your, your own fund? Um, yeah, I thought about it over the years, but for me, the timing felt right. Uh, end of 2020 is when I started thinking through it. You know, a lot of these crypto funds have grown massive and really treated early stage investing as an afterthought. And so I just saw it as an opportunity to build something at its core, taking founders from zero to one. So ended up raising fund one in uh, early 2021 and um, was in New York at the time. Did it all, it was middle of COVID. So raised the whole fund over Zoom, which was an interesting experience. Uh, a lot of Zoom marathons, but you know, grateful to have some fantastic long-term oriented uh, LPs and partners. Yeah, the so you you raised early 2021. Uh, I guess for context for the audience, we're talking NFTs are really starting to take off, right? That is a use case. This you know January is when Beeple's you know five thousand days sold for uh, you know sixty nine million dollars. Um, that's that's when the craze starts. That's actually when I was introduced to the space. I was getting into fine art, physical art, and uh, and was lucky enough to be introduced to, to NFTs in around February of that time. And um, it was really starting to boom, I guess. When you went to these LPs, were these LPs that were familiar with the crypto space? Were these LPs you had worked with at other firms? Like, how were you... How were you kind of pitching the the fund? What was your big thesis then uh, in order to bring some of these people on board? Yeah, so I think it was um, the the focus, right? Like I think I learned a lot in fund one. I, I thought it would be sort of the investors and LPs would be mostly individuals, family offices, uh, you know, folks that I'd gotten to know over some time, whether it was via co-invest, you know, just socially, whatever it may be. But I really was very green in understanding the LP landscape. And, you know, I think it was very helpful having a few LPs who were willing to whiteboard uh, and just talk through the theses and, you know, just articulate my track record, just putting it all together and making it into a presentable, digestible format, putting together a deck, uh, putting together all these things, right? I think those early conversations were instrumental in bringing what ultimately became a majority institutional uh, LP backed fund. And so the, the approach was when, if I think back to the fund one uh, fundraise, you know, it was New York city centric, the uh, sort of the developer mindshare and entrepreneurial mindshare had shifted West coast from San Francisco, where I was to Brooklyn, to New York city. So that was part of it, really boots on the ground, rolling up the sleeves for founders in, in the backyard. It was a focus on the emerging application era, right? You, you saw signs of it with DeFi, with, you know, your, to your point around NFTs and OpenSea. And um, it was still early days, but a big part of it was, you know, sort of finding the applications that could scale to millions of users or scale to, you know, a thousand super fans. And so, um was lucky enough to sort of, you know, get referred to other folks. Uh, maybe it was, you know, some of these LPs got to know as, uh, you know, they had backed other VCs in this space and I, you know, led rounds in prior years or whatever, maybe, but really took my time to launching Archetype, had thought about doing it in 2017, 2018, and always wanted to build something. But, you know, there, I think it was important just to learn off of someone else's dime and learn and accomplish, learn at consensus, you know, learn at converge before ultimately rolling up the sleeves and, and building out my own firm. That's interesting. So 
let's let's talk about how it's changed. Uh, there's a lot that goes on. Uh, one of the most common things that comes up on my show is you know Web three time or crypto time, uh, and how you know that two years, uh, approximately two years since the beginning of 2021, um, so much has happened. Uh, how has your mindset, your thesis, your your funds? changed in terms of what they're investing in um, from that time to, to where we are now? Yeah. So I, I think broad stroke thesis, you know, continuing to focus on uh, the applications and sort of the infrastructure middleware tooling that will allow for those uh, applications. That continues to be the focus. I think the the environment in 2021 was absolutely bonkers. You know, it was it was the crypto funds, it was uh, the Web2 funds, it was, you know, the fintechs, it was you know, sort of everyone wanted a piece of, of crypto and it, and it became just, you know, it got really out of hand. Uh, we stayed very focused on, you know, stage and finding founders before they went out to market and raise, you know, large rounds and things like that. I think what we saw quickly is, you know, the, the founders that we backed we're getting preempted and, you know, sort of we're getting interest to raise much larger rounds. And so, um, you know, I think that was exciting to see, but just from investing in the space for eight years now had not seen that kind of craze uh, at any point in, in, in prior years. So, you know, I think that was just, if things are starting to work, you know, you, you gotta be really thoughtful as a founder around, you know, do I go for that growth round and, you know, maybe the stage of the business or protocol is not there, but, you know, there are trade-offs to it. Um, and so, yeah, I think today, look, a lot of that excitement and FOMO investing has dissipated. And this is very akin to 2018, where, you know, a lot of the even crypto native uh, firms were sitting on their hands and sort of, you know, taking their time and, and deploying. And so, you know, I think today you have a significant amount more in dry powder, but it's very uh, similar to, to 2018 in terms of just, you know, it, it was so crazy in 2017 and, and things came back down to reality. And I think, you know, this year, next year, or the next few years, there's going to be some absolutely incredible protocols and companies get built. And it's really going to come from the folks that take that long, that long-term view and really want to build new categories or just completely disrupt existing categories. Yeah, that's what did you what, what is kind of your philosophy on taking tokens as an investment as opposed to equity? Have you have shifted that? Has that ever been a consideration for you? Have you always been all equity? What's yeah, we, what does that we look like for have always done phone? both have always done both. Um, you know, I think in years past, there were a number of uh, crypto venture funds, or maybe they're structured as hedge funds that only wanted tokens. And so, um, look, I think if you are operating in a highly compliant regulated uh, area where, you know, you're a crypto company, but you're interacting with banks and things like that, you know, it, it probably makes sense to be a pure equity sort of infrastructure play. Um, that said, we think this is a new paradigm in terms of how you build out a network, right? You have tokens that you can use to incentivize, uh, you know, people that are contributing to that network, uh, to that protocol. And the power of the collective is, is incredible, you know, if you can activate them via tokens. And so, you know, we feel like tokens are one of the most exciting pieces about the space. Um, but, you know, I think, look, there's going to be incredible pillar sort of core infra kind of companies that are just pure equity plays. Coinbase obviously being a great example of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. I mean, the, I just, I can always draw back to a interview with uh, Kyle Soleimani at, at Multicoin talking about how they, if, if there is a physical product, then there needs to be equity <laughs> was like the basic uh, understanding. But it sounds like you you take that a step further and you say, if it's infrastructure and maybe not a, a consumer product, right? Is that is that how would you categorize, I guess, outside of infrastructure yeah. versus infrastructure? Yeah, I th look, I think if you're plugging into banks, right? Like if you're building something like an off-ramp, right? From your MetaMask non-custodial wallet to bank accounts, you know, we, we have a, portfolio company doing exactly that called Ansible. 
does it make sense for them to to issue a token? Uh, you know, I think it's tricky, right? They have to they have to be really smart about how do you integrate in a existing sort of uh, status quo sort of environment and industry. And so, for some of these businesses, for for the businesses, some of them, you know, it does it makes zero sense to jam in a token? And so, you know, I do think we've seen over the past few years. Uh, a number of the Web two VCs just say, "Hey, you know, introduce a token." Um, but we try to think through value accrual in the earliest stages of partnering with a founder, and so it really informs how we're going to structure an investment. Um, if they're building a network or a protocol or something or a collective, right? A, a token almost certainly makes sense there at some point in the future. If it is uh, dealing with traditional rails, right, jamming in a token and introducing a token could actually create a, uh, a significant amount more friction. And so, you know, it, it, it's it's less specific around retail versus enterprise. Uh, although we have seen sort of you know retail skew more towards a token oriented type model and networks and protocols. Uh, we could certainly see that change in in the future, right? You know, this could be similar to sort of the early internet days where, you know, none of these businesses had online presences and maybe having a token or NFTs or, you know, a digital type, uh, an internet native kind of strategy makes sense here, but too early to say how, how that's going to pan out exactly on the, at least as it relates to enterprises and businesses introducing their own native tokens. Yeah. I guess if you think about like recent, the, the recent headlines, the positive headlines in the space, uh, a lot of companies are experimenting on what you're talking about, where they are, uh, they, they may be online, right? Like most, most companies are online now, at least retail companies. Um, and now they're like, okay, how can I increase the amount of touch points with my audience? Yeah. Right. How can, how can I own more of that customer journey um, and create a unique experience that's relevant for today's consumers? Yeah. And you see, you know, the Nikes of the world and many other luxury brands that have been really leaning into to that idea. I know it's not quite tokens, but I guess, it, I mean, it is, it's it NFTs, is. Oh, yeah. but it's not, it's not to, uh, fungible tokens. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, certainly. I think brands and NFTs, right. It just, it's, it's, uh, I think we're going to see some really exciting stuff over the next few years. And we already have seen some really exciting stuff there. Um, I think, you know, ERC twenties and fungible tokens. Where could they come in for an enter- an existing enterprise? And you look at sort of uh, reward systems and points and all these things. And you know these companies, these massive companies, can sort of pull the levers however they want, and they can decide. You know what? Your points only apply to year end. And so, I think those things could certainly look more like an ERC twenty where the holders and the users of that product and, and uh, you know, they might have a say, hopefully they have a say in a forum and in the go forward. But yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation and for the larger companies, now is a great time to do it, right? You've, you've the FOMO and sort of the craziness has, has died out. And now it's about, you know, wow, let's run this real experiment. Um, at the same time, we were far more excited about, you know, the early stage companies, startups, protocols that are built, you know, sort of in line with this new tech, new technology. So you've, you've got the, the, the crypto native companies for a crypto native fund that you're, that you're more interested in. We, we, yeah, exactly. We love the crypto native founders, companies, <laughs> protocols. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing some really exciting stuff pop up right now. Um, you know, one of the words that is is so dear to this industry uh, that I have chatted at length about some with our mutual friend um, is decentralization. Yeah, um, it is a big part of this industry. It is enabled by the technology at a level that has never been possible before. How do you view that broadly, and then how do you talk about that in terms of how it applies to different use cases and how much it should play a role early on in a company versus later in a company's life? Yeah, I, I do think if as a early stage founder, if you want to ultimately build a decentralized platform 
regardless of what it is exactly, to start out of the gates as decentralized as you hope to be at scale is an extremely difficult task. And so we're, we're strong believers in progressively decentralizing. Uh, early days, you know, you sort of have to figure out what the initial product is going to be, you know, figure out what the users are going to be, the community. Um, and once you get some signs of that machine going, there are ways to begin the steps to decentralize. You know, I think time will tell, and it's going to be, it's really going to come down to the visionary founders who decide what actually makes sense to decentralize, right? Uh, governance, decentralizing product creation and product updates can be tricky, right? Uh, if you have an you have to really think through incentive systems and, and all these things, uh, you know, as you're getting to scale and whatnot. But, you know, we are strong believers in decentralization and the power of collectives and, you know, giving say to users, you know. Um, but to start with complete decentraliz decentralization out of the gate, is it just a daunting task? Um, you know, but I do think ultimately at scale, you want to get to this power of the collective and, uh, getting to that machine is a really difficult task. You know, I would, I would almost argue Ethereum, uh, of, of course, Bitcoin has to be included in this conversation, but you know, if, if you think around things beyond Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin might be the only two that have really figured out a path to, uh, sufficient decentralization. It's a 10, you know, it's a 5, 10, 15, 20 year kind of journey. And this technology is quite new. So. And you got to have mass adoption. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, what's the point of decentralizing if it's a, you know, a couple thousand people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you really need network effects there to, to capitalize on it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think um, decentralization and, and, do no evil, right? Th those things should go hand in hand. Um, you know, at, at scale, the internet, uh, our, the the system we use for money, the applications that we need to use to, you know, sort of uh, get through the day or get through the week or are vital, right? These things, it's it's scary thinking around. Okay, there's one person or one company that dictates. Uh, this is exactly how my life is going to pan out versus a collective versus sort of ways to voice your own opinion and and push for, you know, kind of results and uh, products and, and services that are in line with, uh, you know, what you what you hope to accomplish. But, you know, we, we think that this technology can permeate every aspect of your life. And we're still, you know, very early days in in uh, in that actually transpiring. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one of the most interesting perspectives I've heard recently was just thinking about how assets are transferred right now uh, in general, not just money, assets, right? Uh, and how much more efficient it could be. It's not It's not there yet, right? It's just still really slow, a lot of this stuff, but how much more efficient it could be uh, with so few third parties involved when when it's ready, right? And if it's a more efficient transfer of value, at the fundamental level that that could be better for everybody. Right. Um, I, I know we got a long way to go to get there. I think the numbers I've heard is around $1,500 trillion that are transferred um, right now in assets. And, and we're at like, you know, who, who knows what on the blockchain, probably like less than a billion. I don't, I'm a couple, I mean, I'm not probably not less than a billion, less than a trillion for sure. Um, <laughs> so we got a long way to go, but there is, it can permeate our lives. I think, one of the things that is not in direct conflict with that statement, but is something that uh, I think comes early in any technology movement amongst the maxis is the, the idea that uh, we need to do it. We need to do it right now. We need to upend everything. Right. Um, and what that has led to is, uh, in my opinion, a massive issue with the perception of the space. Um, it's led to people thinking that it's unrealistic. It's led to multiple debates with very smart people trying to, to go over use cases where they're just kind of rubbing their head in the sand. Right. Um, and, and it's also led to the way that it being described 
sticking to like this, like super technical kind of approach to it. Um, what I aim to change on the show is to learn from people like yourself, from entrepreneurs as well, from other creators, um, and that how are they tackling that problem? So I guess my question for you is, how do you think about it from a, a fund and institutional fund level in terms of the perception of crypto and Web3 and, and overcoming that in order to either put your LPs at ease or, or what have you? And then how do you think about it on the company level? How do you advise your companies? Do you take a role in helping them understand the importance of making this simple, right? Um, yeah, expand on that if you don't mind. Yeah, I, so I think if you take a top-down perspective to investing in crypto and Web3, you're going to be so off in terms of timing and investing in products and protocols that actually resonate with the underlying and, and a mass audience. Um, I'd say our approach has been focus on the grassroots initiatives, right? Focus on uh, founder as an investor, focus on founders who really understand the problem set. And so I'll give a few examples here, but um, a few weeks ago, there was concerns that Twitter would go bankrupt, right? There, you know, uh, just sort of the mass firings, um, you know, Elon threatened, okay, look, we might go bankrupt. And so as a Twitter user, everyone's like scrambling, like, what do we even go to? And so, you know, we, we invested in Dan Romero's company called called uh, Farcaster, building a protocol and, and the interface. And, you know, I think just having an alternative, having optionality around things that we're doing day to day where it's really just a sort of a, a, a one company, one product monopoly. And so, you know, there's sort of that, that afternoon where everyone's scrambling and posting, you know, their Farcaster profile links. Hey, if this site isn't available tomorrow, go find me here. So I think, you know, as a investor, identifying and and help helping to support founders who really understand the grassroots, uh, understand the problem set, understand that you know it doesn't have to be the the Web three alternative is likely going to look extremely different from the existing Web two offering. But I think just building for optionality, right? Users and and People around the world should have options for how they conduct commerce, how they what they consider money, you know, uh, the ability to not deal with gatekeepers if they want to get a loan, right? And so I think the beauty in smart contracts and programmability is uh, you can build out that alternative, and you know it's going to look different, but it's it's a similar kind of analogy where. You know, the internet allowed for very different things for businesses to scale internet native businesses. And I think we're seeing something similar with programmability, sort of natively tying compute and value. That's awesome. So are, are you a, a Farcaster user? Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> product. Like, uh, yeah. you know, there have been attempts over prior years. Like, uh, it's, it's an absolutely incredible product. Yeah, it's familiar, I have to say, um, having used it a little bit, right? Um, you know, casting instead of tweeting, it's um, you know, recasting. Um, it's it's familiar. And look, you have to be right. Like, you don't, I think, I think that is a great point to think about when, you know, a lot of this perception problem, I think, comes out of re trying to reinvent the wheel, right? Like, there's certain things that work well, if people are used to doing things uh, a certain way, aka Twitter, right, and tweeting and conversing and writing threads and, and retweeting and all that, right? We don't need to reinvent that part. But what is really cool is to create a decentralized protocol where, uh, you know, I'm, when, when things are interoperable, you'll be able to take your stuff with you everywhere you go. I, I love that vision from Dan. Yeah, yeah, he he's certainly onto something, and uh, you know he, he, I think he understands the Web two existing players remarkably well. But he also is crypto native, and he understands, um, you know, there that's not the end all. You don't want to just replicate it. There's so much. There's so much else you can do, and so uh, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to to follow his journey.
Yeah, I would love to. I'm gonna have to try and get him on the show. I want to. I haven't had any. Happy to help. Yeah, yeah, happy to help. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so you know, let's let's switch gears a little bit. You know, um, I think what is a mystery to a lot of people that I talk to is you know what everybody talks about how this is a more equitable approach and it's more decentralized um, and how Web three might have an impact on the world. Um, do you do you think about the the social impact of of Web three and crypto writ large at all? Is that something that that you consider? On? I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I sort of alluded to it earlier, but just the gatekeeping aspect, like the ability to uh, custody and store your own assets, uh, just non custodial wallets. I mean, this it feels like it should be a human right, right? Not having to rely on centralized, uh, you know, third parties that store your assets. Uh, you have to go through multiple steps to move those assets to other places. They're on very different standards. Uh, you know, there are times where those assets could be at risk if. You, you know, you move to a different jurisdiction and, you know, are, are still, you know, a good, good Samaritan, good citizen. Um, I think just, you know, the ability to, and, and look, it's still, you know, early days here. We, you know, we, we have a, I think getting comfortable around seed recovery and, and understanding gas fees and not clicking on phishing links. Like these are things that the, um, the whole world is getting educated on, right? Crypto natives have, have uh, you know, learned about it a few years earlier, but I, I look, these are all things that, that need to be, uh, uh, that the, the masses need to be educated on and actually use around. But I think it's just so powerful, the ability to, you know, bring the most valuable, bring extremely valuable assets uh, and, and sort of self-custody them. So, I think that alone is just such a powerful message. And then the ability to, you know, take out a stable coin loan, right? Use those assets to, uh, you know, not you don't have to go to a bank and pay the 10% APR average or, you know, rack up your credit card bill. Uh, you know, you can go direct to one of these DeFi protocols and sort of get, you know, competitive rates in a... And that kind of um, openness and, you know, transparency and programmability is something you're just not going to get if you walk into a certain bank, you're not a customer and, you, you know, you want to get a, a loan to pay off, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so funny. Every time I see a retail bank come up, I'm like, why are they building that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a write-off for depreciating asset for Jamie Dimon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and like yeah, it's just, I mean, some of the stuff is just like, oh my God, like how are these, some of these uh, banks and financial institutions, uh, you know, of of the past, like, and that are still around today, like how are they still in business? Like they're not even thinking about their users. I. I got an email. It's like, Hey, uh, refinance your home. Interest rates are great right now. It's like, what are you guys doing? Like, <laughs> what are you talking I mean, it's about? Just like, Have it, you read the news? <laughs> it, I'm just blown away by it. It's like as a company, right. Or as a, you know, these aren't protocols, but as a company, you should, um, be building market share and still be in business because you have a compelling offering and product and understanding of where the market's at. And it's just like a complete disconnect, uh, to the point of just, extreme laziness. I mean, it just is mind boggling seeing some of these legacy retail financial services kind of banks. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you, how do you feel uh, in terms of the sentiment towards the space currently? I think we are in the era of rebuilding trust. Um, I think, um, you know, with with crypto and Web3, as someone who lives and breathes it, I, you know, there's so many different areas that are being built out, DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, uh, compute, you know, uh, privacy, scalability, um, you know, IP, gaming. But I think as a outsider, you see the headlines and it's a scary time. And so um, I, I think for the founders, out there, it's about identifying, you know, the 
the crypto natives and the power users in identifying batches of people that um, could could come over, right? Uh, they just don't understand, you know, they just haven't been exposed to the right product, right? Um, I think right now we're seeing some absolutely fascinating things happening with with music NFTs. It feels like we're approaching or at a inflection point within music NFTs. And this is, you know, I think existing musicians, Web3 musicians, collectors, uh, sort of the incumbent stack within music is all paying attention to this. And so over time, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you don't just, inter, you don't just view all the software and applications as the internet, right? You're, you know, now we have SaaS and, you know, a variety of different ways to sort of cut up the internet market. But I think it's going to be, you know, we're going to see something similar with crypto. Uh, but as an outsider, you know, it's easy to dismiss the space collectively. Um, and so now is about sort of, uh, you know, rebuilding trust, figuring out the path forward. Um, you know, I think with with the whole F, FTX shenanigans, like it's it's our job as a, as a crypto industry to educate you know, this was not happening on chain, right? This was a centralized, you know, almost piggy bank for for SPF. And so, you know, I think it's important to highlight and educate the the broader public. Um, but I'm optimistic. It's it's going to be a journey from here. Uh, we're we're still seeing incredible founders enter the space, and there's always segments of you know excitement uh, as it relates to on chain activity, even today when when things are scary. Yeah, I think what I hear when you say that is the way we build trust is by meeting people where they are. And people don't wake up in the morning, they're like, I'm going to go internet today. <laughs> right? They wake up in the morning, they're like, I want to listen to some music. Yep. Right? Or I want to listen to a podcast, probably web through with me because it's the best, right? Like, you know, like they, they think about what they do. Uh, and, and we have to meet people where they are doing those things, right? Uh, I don't know much about them. We've talked about this off air. I don't know much about the music industry at large, nor do I know much about music NFTs other than the little bit of exposure to, to Blau and, and a little bit of familiarity with Royal. Um, can you give me like, or give the audience a high level explanation of where the music industry was pre Web3 and then where you see it going and why right now you feel like is a big inflection point? Yeah. So pre-Web3, as a artist, you were... the. I guess there are a few things, but the main metric that you're looking at is streams, Spotify streams. You know, you also have you know, concerts and all that kind of stuff, but um, one of the one of the main catalysts to get a high degree of streams, which equals you know a certain amount of monthly passive uh, income as, as an artist, um, or getting concerts is via these record labels. Uh, as an artist, you also have Twitter or social following. Um, all of these things are happening in in various silos, and you know you're also another piece of the record labels and, and sort of partnering with a third party like that is to get in upfront, you know, sort of uh, uh, amount of capital that, you know, you can use to hire other people uh, to actually travel, whatever it may be. And so what we're seeing with um, Web3 music uh, and music NFTs is you already have distribution. So what if you had a um, instrument or vehicle to monetize, you know, sort of the, uh, how good the songs were, how good the albums were. So you can, there are a bunch of different ways you can cut it, right? You can sell uh, a whole album or specific song as an NFT um, versus relying on the, you know, tens of millions of streams you need to do to, to see a similar kind of, uh, of, of income for, for both. Um, you know, I think for, the, I, I mentioned it before, but you know, with with let's say you earn ETH by selling these NFTs, you know, you can actually take out loans on, uh, you know, you can get a stablecoin loan, and that sort of you know serves in a similar kind of role to what a lot of these record labels have offered. Um, you can do collabs with other artists, and you know, sort of put your music online as an NFT and 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 split sort of income 
uh, in an internet kind of manner. Um, you're less reliant on a third party where you don't have, you know, complete insight into the number of streams that you're doing beyond them telling you, these are the amount of streams you did last month. And this is how much we're going to pay you for the month. And so I think it's just a model where this is, uh, this is how it should have been, right? Like record labels are built off of a pre-internet era. And so, you know, I think, um, most of what's working today are these artists who understand how smart contracts work, like how distribution works. Um, but you also have a number of sort of, uh, you know, uh, mass followed um, musicians who are beginning to experiment where they can with music NFTs. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's um, from a listening standpoint to NFTs distributed, to NFTs minted, to activating your fan base using nfts as that as that medium and as that vehicle like we're just seeing some really really cool and really exciting uh experimentation happening right now do you see it coming as more of like a platform approach where uh i would say i'm an artist and i and i go to uh, I, I know i want to launch my next album in web3 um, is there going to be a, a place where you go that can direct you to the loans that can direct you to the distribution that can direct you to all these ancillary things or are all these different notches that the artists will kind of have to learn on their own? I, yeah. What, what's the market structure for music NFTs? I think it's just too early Better question. In, yeah. I think it's, <laughs> it's just too early to say, um, you know, you look at Spotify, Spotify came well after a lot of, uh, you know, the sort of the internet based music approaches. Um, I remember as a kid, like Apple, you know, iTunes, like paying 99 cents for songs and things like that. It's 9.99 for the album. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, and then, you know, you have things like um, SoundCloud where it's sort of, uh, you know, the longer tail of musicians, of collabs, of remixes, but there was, you know, there, there still is incredible artists that use that as their initial platform. YouTube, as you know, sort of you had Justin Bieber and, and a, a number of others that have popped up. Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, a lot of these shows on TV that ended up producing artists that we know and musicians that we know uh, very well as, as a mainstream audience. And so I, I think it's just, too early to say this is exactly how the market's going to pan out. Um, we've made a few investments in the space, and I think it's backing founders who understand crypto, but also understand the music industry, and um, you know can help activate some of these early musicians and, and their audiences, and, and present new audiences for them. And so, um, yeah, it's just a really fascinating time. Yeah, it is. I, I've two interesting examples that uh i'll give the um i had a previous guest who is uh he's younger but he's, he's starting this new education course and um his sister is an amazing singer and he let her record and then he turned it into an nft and it sold out in 24 hours right um and you know it's technically her manager now right like i which i think a lot of people are trying to get away from but like but for that, she would have no idea how to put it uh, to sell it, right? Like it would be going through the record labels and and doing that traditional path. You'd really have no no other option where you'd have uh, at least con control over your streams of revenue. Um, the other thing that that comes to mind is I'm a, I'm a member of the uh, NFT collection called the Dead Fellas, and they had a nice party uh, NFT NYC and not a single artist that went on stage music or not for some of them were performance artists as well. Um, I guess you could say music artists are that too. Um, but they, I'd never heard of them, you know, and I started to think deep, like if we really are democratizing, um, kind of the, uh, the, the socialization of people and trying to use the NFTs or fungible tokens as a way of pooling capital, right? Creating capital pools and letting the collective decide. That seems like an ideal use case, right? Finding people within the community and letting them perform on stage. Now there's quality control, I think is always the counter argument to that, but it's just the fact that the community decided 
who was going on stage. And it was, it, it's like this renaissance of like underground music, right? Where these people that may have just been going club to club or like tried to be a regular at one club can now uh, join a community that values music and really like, at least make a living. I don't know if you're going to be a millionaire from something like that, but you know, they can make a good living just being a part of these communities, which I think is awesome. Oh yeah. I mean, curation as a, as something that could be a full-time job, you know, curating music, curating, uh, applications, curating, you know, it, just within crypto and, and web three and building atop these marketplaces, I think is a, is going to be something that we see as a, you know, a career decision, something you can do actually as a career. Um, and I think also just the beauty of the open, transparent, public uh, pieces of, of Ethereum and, and Web3 in general, like this is going to allow for more unique taste, more uh, opinions, uh, more ways of saying, um, you know, that's cool. Like, I think these things are unlocked versus like, top 40, these are the artists, they, you know, it's, uh, society is telling you these are the, you know, musicians or the, whatever it may be that, you know, you as a mainstream consumer should be paying attention to it and should be consuming. So yeah, it, it's, I think it's a, um, curation and curators as a, as something that could be a full-time job is something that we're certainly tracking and, and excited about. Yeah. I just, I keep thinking there's a, there's one word that keeps coming up as, as you give your answers. And I, I keep just wanting to ask about the word discoverability because in one instance, the discoverability is higher, like you said, right? Like I, I can have a more of an opinion now as opposed to having to re re rely on Spotify and, and take it from someone who doesn't run a large podcast. It's hard to get discovered on Spotify unless you're big. Um, and so, you know, I guess, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like there's a, there's an added amount of discoverability, but on the other side of that coin, there is also the fact that because there's so much content out there, that it may be harder to sift through the different stuff to find the stuff you like. So it's, I don't know. How do you, how do you see that balance? Do you think about that at all? Yeah, no, I think competing in a red sea is something that regardless of what you're trying to do, podcasts, you know, you're writing a book, building a firm, building a company, building protocol is just a generally very difficult thing to do. Um, I do think adding the a layer of ownership um, is something that seems and, and getting the right people excited about something uh, historically has been a fantastic way to, to cut through the noise or focusing sort of on newer technologies and, and, and newer platforms. And just going back to that ownership piece, um, you know, there's, there's sort of the, the social piece to it, right? Like, on Twitter, let's say, you know, someone is, goes on the podcast, retweets it, there's a level of ownership, but it's not, it's not native. It's not, there's no explicit ties around ownership, you know, with, with um, things like NFTs, with tokens, you can actually codify ownership around internet native products. And I'm not saying, you know, Zach, that's 100% the route you should go tomorrow. I think these things need to be thought out you know, at, at, at length, but, um, you know, the discoverability piece is really supercharged by ownership and, you know, sort of having that common goal together and, um, you know, how you achieve that, how you unlock it, uh, and, and what new platforms you look for, for distribution and, and activation is an open question. But, uh, you know, I, I do think we're talking about an entirely different way to, build collectives, build companies, build protocols. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, you, you alluded to it. Uh, um, you know, I think a lot about, you know, what does it mean to build my community, right? Um, I, I want to be bigger. I want, I want to have more of a community before I even attempt to do that. I mean, I th I've seen a lot of podcasts um, and, and different shows come out right out the gate. And they're like, I'm releasing every show as an NFT. Or, you know, I'm dropping a, a token because that's Web3 native. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I, 
I, I get it, right? Like I get like literally those are, are ways that you can leverage the technology to build a community, but don't you want to like build an identity for the show first? Because to me, Web3 is this kind of, I don't like the term flywheel, but I keep using it. So I'm just going to use it now. Flywheel of ownership and identity, right? Where one feeds the other. Uh, one of the best analogies I've heard for that is, you know, if you've got a car outside and it's dirty and it's not yours, you probably don't care right? But if the car is yours, you might want to clean it, right? Um, so until I feel like I've reached a quorum of people that identify with my show, then I'll consider, you know, how do I monetize that? How do I create the community and facilitate something greater than just people who enjoy my content? Yeah. And I, look, I don't think you have to have it all figured out. I think it's totally acceptable to run experiments. Um, yeah. I think there's some great points there. You, like you have to figure out who you are, what your identity is, uh, what your identity is, like what you want the community to be and sort of, you know, you have different concentric circles of that community and that collective um, from the folks who come on the show to the listeners, to, you know, what could be patrons and, um, I think it's I, just going back to the experimentation piece, you know, going experimenting with a POAP, right? You look at POAP and um, people are 50%, 60% more likely to show up uh, at events if there's a POAP there. Like there's real metrics around it. And so that's not to say, you're, you know, you're introducing a token and you're tokenizing and it's, you know, you're splitting ownership exactly like this um i totally think you know there, there's experiments you can run along the way until you figure out okay this is it you know this is the right approach uh so yeah look i think um the identity piece though is is definitely important like you know figure out what the initial wedge is and and you know go from there and run experiments that's what the way. writing side has has led to is is honestly like just after listening to so many people and hearing their opinions, I'm starting to form my own, right? Like, and I, I obviously have a, a I, tr I try to take as practical approach as possible, uh, how that builds out, um, you know, that, that will take time to figure out, but progressive decentralization is at the center of that. Figuring out how to meet people where they are is at the center of that. And, and realizing that lately, not everything has to revolve around web three or crypto for it to be related to that industry, right? Um, there are certain aspects and advice and insights that uh, you can make more generally. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. But I know we're nearing the top of the hour. I've got two traditional closing questions. This has been awesome. Um, the first one is, uh, how do you describe Web3? Read, write, and own. Can you go a little bit deeper for me? Yeah. So <clears throat> instead of, and when we've given examples and talked through it uh, over the podcast, but, um, you know, with the internet, uh, internet V1, it was sort of, you know, you could just read, it was just RSS feeds and things like that. Uh, then you had, you know, web two, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. You could actually write with, uh, you know, you could read and write and actually, you know, sort of submit your own thoughts and your own, um, you know, packets of information centered around the internet. The next iteration of the internet, Web3, is you can actually own a piece of the software and applications and protocols and services that you're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and there's going to be new things that pop up, you know, that are, that are in line with that own kind of uh, added tier to read, write, own. So, yeah, hopefully that's, that sort of sums it up. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the final closing questions forward looking, uh, it is where do you see yourself, uh, in your, in archetype in the next six to 12 months and the space writ large. And then where do you see all those in five to 10 years? Uh, my day-to-day -day ethos and focus and mantra is provide as much value to founders as you possibly can and accelerate and, and help them get to where they want to be faster and even be the guardrails to, you know, realize what, what that might actually be. My hope, uh, you know, is that mantra expands beyond the, if you know, you know, uh, kind of community that, you know, we've tapped into to date, but 
expands to crypto, Web2, you know, the New York City uh, tech ecosystem. And, you know, we become, we, you know, we're well on our way to becoming a, a household name here, here in New York and become, you know, synonymous with, you know, these guys really help founders get from zero to one and, and scale, uh, you know, in, in the best way we possibly can. Um, as a space, where do we go six to 12 months? I think we're going to see, you know, new use cases, new things that pop up. I think um, a lot of teams that went for FOMO and are going to take a hard look in the mirror and, you know, look at the technology, what's possible to do today, uh, what can be built over a longer time period, and what can I prove out in that six to 12 month period. And then, you know, five to 10 years, we've talked about it over the show, but um, crypto is, is, it's going to be like talking about the internet, right? You're going to have so many different pockets of crypto, uh, as a user, you might not even know you're interacting with a blockchain, um, you know, with account abstraction and whatever's next after that in the, in the coming years. So, you know, I, I, I think just from a potential of what crypto could be, we're talking about, you know, parallels to the internet. And so I hope we see emerging and, you know, hopefully granular signs of, of crypto getting to that point in, in the five year, 10 year timeframe. And we're certainly on our way. So um, we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll have to timestamp it. Awesome. Yeah. We'll play this in a, in a few years and see what happens, <laughs> but thanks so much, Ash. I appreciate you coming on. This yeah. Thank you, Zach. Very insightful. Um, and yeah, man, take it easy. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.